Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Premier Ford has gone back and forth on whether he's ever going to touch the green belt. The creator of the green belt can assure us it's not a scam. Healthcare is also on the agenda today. Always going to be number one issue, of course, for so many Canadians these days, especially with the development of the new provincial policy moving towards privatization. Merritt Stiles, the leader of the Ontario NDP, will join us to discuss that. And there's a lot of talk about NATO nations and uh, their role in the South China Sea. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Greenbelt, uh, boy, the, the, the change in policy and the change in attitude, I guess, from Ontario Premier Doug Ford towards the Greenbelt has just been mind-blowing over the last little while. Uh, from, you know, de- promising developers, he's going to open swaths of it and then backtracking and say, no, you don't want me to touch the Greenbelt, I won't. Well, and now he's touching the Greenbelt. Uh, actually went so far a couple of weeks ago in a speech to call the whole thing, the whole idea of a Greenbelt a scam. Well, one of the people that was involved in developing the Green Belt uh, is uh, well going to join us right now. He's written a, a very insightful op-ed piece in the Toronto Star. Uh, as a creator of the Green Belt, he says, I can assure you it is no scam. Uh, he is Victor Doyle. Victor is a professional planner who actually led the development of the Green Belt plan uh, low these many years ago. Victor, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I really do appreciate it. Good morning, Bill. Happy to be here. Uh, let's 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 get into this. Uh, I've, I've told our listeners uh, we've talked about this many times. Of course, as you might expect. I mean, I was on Hamilton Council when this was developed, so uh, I know a little bit about the development of it. My my wife uh, Rebecca was actually one of the first appointees to the Greenbelt Council, so you know we, we're we're I've got some knowledge about what was going on, how this whole thing started. Uh, when when the premier uttered that that phrase that this is just a big scam, I, I just thought first of all I was enraged by this because I know the work that went into this I know why the work went into this right now, and he either doesn't understand that or just wants to ignore that. Yes, well, uh, I start my op-ed with saying the common of the meaning of the word scam is a dishonest or legal illegal plan or activity, and the creation of the green belt could be. There's nothing further from the truth. It was legally created, it's supported by its own legislation, and uh, certainly there was no dishonesty involved. The thousands of people who were involved, the premiers just disparaged all their reputations with such a statement. If he doesn't understand it or he doesn't like it, that's one thing, but to slag all the people who put their time and effort into it, and organizations, is just... uh, well, really there are always, yeah, as, as you know, Victor, you've been through this process many, many times. Uh, there's always going to be some people that are just going to be opposed to this. Others are going to have some questions about it. And we, we all understand that. Uh, but some of these uh, critics are trying to make this into a political issue, you know, and then just say, uh, well, these are just tree huggers anyway, and which, I, I, which is kind of a, a lame brain phrase. But I mean, as you point out so rightly in, in the piece that was in the star, this whole concept of conservation was developed by conservative governments over the years. The whole idea of conservation authorities, the whole idea of preservation of things like the Niagara region and Oak Ridge's moraine. Uh, that's done by the, the Robarts and the Bill Davis governments for so many years. And, uh, uh, you know, so this is not a, a conservative ideology. As a matter of fact, the conservative, conservative ideology is to preserve these areas, not to, to plot all over them. Yes, and it even extends more recently to the Mike Harris administration yeah. who brought in the Oak Ridge's Marine Conservation Plan. And I think it's because they understand that uh, protecting nature is more than just about the birds and the bees and our water resources. It's a really important 
term economic long-term economic strategy the environment and economy go hand in hand particularly in ontario with the great lakes it's a globally significant resource and how we manage the land and all the water that drains into it is equally as important and similarly agriculture the agri-food sector is a huge one of the top uh, gdp and job creators in the entire province and we have the best farmland in all of canada here so uh, earlier conservative regimes and ideologies certainly embraced and understood that. And, and we understand that growth is going to happen. I mean, nobody's saying don't, you know, don't grow. We all know that's going to happen. It's almost inevitable. Uh, but when, when the green belt itself was initiated and you worked with so many other people to, to come up with this, this plan, it was done in concert with another government program called Places to Grow, which is, okay, this is where the growth is going to occur. And this is how it should occur. So they were companion pieces. And, and like any document or any, you know, bill that's being passed here, it, it's a living document. I mean, you didn't just say, there it is, our work is done. Uh, now we move on. In, you know, every now and then there's a review. How are we doing? Does it need to be massaged? Uh, you know, so to suggest that the, you know there's there's restrictions up here, I don't really think is a very fair statement. I mean, there have been a number of opportunities right now for for people to say, okay, is this working? And how is it working? And what needs to be done? I couldn't agree more, Bill. I was intimately involved in the Places to Grow initiative, and we worked hand in glove with them, and we left hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres out of the green belt with her place uh, places to accommodate future growth and we look hundreds of years down the road because you know we plan for 25 years but urbanization is permanent when we pave the landscape it's forever it's not going back to farmland or natural areas since and, and that's why the green belt was supposed to be permanent because to offset the the permanent you know, paving of our landscape. We needed to protect it forever, certainly, and, and allow future generations to make their own determinations. So the idea we're out of land or there's any shortages and we need to chew into the green belt is completely false. Well, and if people look at a map and see where the green belt is and, and, and put this in perspective, first of all, the, the size of the province of Ontario, uh, but but you know, as you mentioned, the availability of, of extra land, uh, over 200,000 acres of approved unbuilt land uh, for urban uses is already sitting around the Golden Horseshoe. Uh, the mayor, the, the premier's own committee that he struck last year to try to find out about where we should be building housing. Uh, and Tim Hudak, a former leader of the Ontario PC party, of course, uh, was the chair of that committee. They came back and said, don't touch the green belt. There's more than enough land to build on right now. So I, I, I don't know where he's getting his advice from here, Victor. Well, I'd say he's not making informed decisions. The government hasn't issued one single piece of information demonstrating or justifying that they needed uh, to chew into the green belt to provide land for housing. And certainly the regional planning commissioners of Ontario and other uh, reputable civil service organizations have proven exactly the opposite. So one can only... Um, basically conclude that he's doing it without any information or he's doing it just to support a, a pure private enterprise development industry led sprawl model of development which is completely regressive and not a good path forward your your history and and, and your expertise is in planning uh where do you see this going? I mean, the, clearly, this government seems to have a mindset in place here, but I, I, I'm getting the sense that even though this is a majority government, it seems to be a minority opinion. Well, certainly the polls have shown that 80 or 90 percent of Ontario 
Australians support the green belt, and I, I think most people would when they were they sat down with pe with people like me and and even got more detailed information. So, so I'm hopeful that the the green belt's going to remain intact. Some of the recent removals are certainly being challenged. Federal government's looking at uh, the most the largest one, about 5,000 acres out in Pickering through a potential federal environmental impact assessment. And I think citizens generally with the media like yourself and others covering and raising awareness will hopefully cause the government to pause, uh, which they've done on very few things. But um, most recently, they were proposing to allow every farm in Ontario to have three new lots created. And the entire agricultural sector basically basically pushed back and the government just walked that back uh, yesterday or the day before. So there is hope if we all come together and, and speak loudly enough. Well, I, I'll direct our listeners uh, to the Toronto Star page and uh, you can see read the op-ed piece for yourself and, and get the perspective on it. Uh, very insightful and very timely. Uh, Victor, thank you, A, for writing it and B, for uh, spending some time with us this morning. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Have a great day. You too. Victor Doyle, professional planner and, and author of the piece uh, about preservation of the green belt. Uh, and it is not a scam. Uh, I know sometimes you reach for words when you're you know, speaking off the cuff and the premier does that from time to time. And sometimes he reaches for the wrong words. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Ontario government has actually charged Marineland uh, with the abusive care of the bears. Uh, I, I don't know exactly why you know, they even have bears at Marineland, but they do. And uh, yet another one. So our, we're going to talk about this on our last call segment at 1130 this morning about uh, keeping animals in captivity for our own amusement. And just, you know, what are we thinking when we do that? I look forward to your input into that. We'll do that just after 1130. Uh, right now, a couple of other issues that I want to get to. Uh, one is healthcare, which is always going to be the number one issue for people these days, uh, given what's gone on, uh, and especially uh, with the, the development of well, the new provincial policy here, which uh, is a big, big push towards privatization. A lot of people have some concerns about that, including our next guest. Uh, she is Marit Stiles. Marit is the leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party and the leader of the opposition in the Ontario legislature. Uh, Merritt, a pleasure to have you back in the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Hi, it's great to be here. Before we get into the healthcare segment, if I don't mind, Merritt, I was just talking with uh, one of the original drafters of the uh, Greenbelt legislation way back when, uh, when that legislation was developed and passed uh, by a previous government who took exception, by the way, to the Premier's characterization that the Greenbelt was a scam. Uh, but part of this, and it was a story from just this week, of course, was another variation on this theme from the Ford government to, to basically subdivide farmland to start building residential properties. Now, it sounds as if he's backtracked on that uh, because the farming community themselves kicked up a fuss and said, what are you doing? We don't want this. I mean, I, and it's great if, if this is going to happen. He's going to actually listen to people. But uh, I'll ask you the same question I asked Victor Doyle. Uh, where is the premier getting his advice to, to suggest that these are ideas that are actually going to help the situation? I don't. You know, I got to tell you, I'm going to hold my applause, too, uh, to see whether or not he actually <laughs> okay. changes the, the legislation and, and does what the farmers are asking. But I don't know where he's getting his advice because – I can tell you, you know, whenever I go uh, and meet with farmers, uh, they're pretty clear that these issues are already in existence. Like there's already difficulty holding on to farms. They have to make sure there's enough space between, you know, farms, especially livestock farming and residential areas. Uh, that goes kind of, you know, those those things are kind of coming together and, and they cause a lot of problems. And uh, and so farmers are really concerned about losing land. 
and dividing up land too much. We're losing almost 320 acres of farmland a day in Ontario. So I don't know where the premier was getting his advice. I'm glad to see him apparently backing off. Uh, but I, I wish he would also listen to all the farmers and everybody else around the province who's who's saying, you know, please don't uh, pave over the green belt because this is going to also cause us a, a lot of loss of really important farmland. Absolutely. Well, it will be interesting to see just how they respond. I mean, anecdotal comments yeah. are one thing, but legislation, I guess, is, is really, you know, when you right. start to carve it in stone. Very quickly, I know you've got limited time with us this morning. Uh, yesterday, the uh, Ontario Financial Accountability Officer uh, says the Ford government is allocating $4.4 billion more than is what, what's needed to fund provincial health care system between now and 2026. Uh, that's a big number, of course. Uh, I'm going to connect that story to the one we just carried this morning on the news that says there's two more hospitals in deaths and died mm-hmm. in the Niagara Peninsula that are closing their ERs overnight because they don't have enough staff. They don't have the, enough resources to be able to do this. Uh, they're throwing money at this problem time and time again, $4.4 billion. We don't seem to be making any progress here. We, as a matter of fact, there's a pretty strong argument to be made that we're going backwards when it comes to the delivery of health care here. Yeah. I mean, a big part of the reason that we are in a crisis in healthcare right now is because uh, it's human resources, right? You and I have talked about this before. It's mm-hmm. the fact that nurses and doctors are are leaving the system uh, faster than they can be recruited or hired. And and that's because the government has not been properly funding healthcare, actually, because they froze the wages of those healthcare workers, nurses, uh, with that terrible bill, 124. And, uh, and you know, that they've been fighting in court because that bill was overturned and they just keep fighting in court to suppress those wages as more and more nurses leave. So here's what I think is going on with this big pot of money. It's 4.4 billion more that we found that's not been allocated in the healthcare uh, budget. And I think what's going on is I think that's the money that the province expects that they're going to be ordered to pay nurses retroactively because of their terrible uh, policy uh, decision. And um, and I should say, you know, even though it's more than what we had, we, we thought they were going to spend, uh, they are really dramatically underspending in healthcare, right? And so when you talk about ERs closing, and some of them are closing, you know, for a few nights, a week, uh, reduced hours, I, there's one in Minden, which I know a lot of people have been hearing about, which is closing permanently as of today. And um, this is going to mean that more and more people uh, are their lives are literally going to be put at risk because they have to go further. So the government could immediately be injecting cash. I don't know why they're waiting for the courts to order them to do so, spending millions of dollars on lawyers. Just do the right thing right now. How much of this, and, and again, we don't have a breakdown on this, but I just want to get your, your educated opinion on this. Uh how much of this money, because this, this is going to be done over the next three years, that, that's what they tell us anyway, uh, Towards uh, is going to go towards private clinics? Because that seems oh, to be the raison d'etre with this new legislation, is they want to rely heavily. And as a matter of fact, they've even admitted that they want to fund the development and, and construction and building of some of these private clinics, uh, as opposed to putting money back into the, into the public health care system. Yeah, well, they definitely, like, just on paper right now, we know that they are even officially saying they're going to increase the spending on those health, private health clinics by 106%. So that's, you know, that's pretty significant. But we think that a lot of those dollars that they've set aside as well are, in fact, because they know, they know that it's going to cost more to run private for profit clinics than it costs to do the same things in the public system. 
Why? Because something has to go to the profits of the shareholders, right? So, you know, that's that's where this really uh, irks me. And I think it really gets under the skin of a lot of, uh, of Ontarians is that not only are, you know, have they starved the system so that we're in a crisis like we're in right now and people are really desperate for solutions, but they're choosing a solution that's going to cost us a lot more and that's going to put money into uh, private pockets and not into patient care. You know, we're, we keep saying, look, uh, instead of uh, instead of mothballing our operating rooms or our emergency departments, put the money in those now invest to keep them open. Don't don't hold on to that cash and wait until you can, you know, line somebody else's pockets to provide that service privately. That's not a solution. It's not going to work. And it's not about, you know, providing better patient care. Um, this government, I, I have to say, this to me is all purely ideological. Uh, you know, there are solutions right now uh, and I, and the government is choosing a path that's going to cost us more. And I'm really worried that it's also going to mean that people are put at greater risk. Well, especially because, as you say, for every new clinic that opens, I mean, how are they going to staff that? Uh, exactly. you know, the preference is probably going to be we want to get experienced people to work in this clinic, uh, which means they're going to be poaching it from the public health care system. So the, the staffing problem you just articulated here is probably going to get it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And you know who's making a lot of money off of the situation we're in right now, uh, Bill, is uh, is these private nursing agencies. And we just got a really interesting leak. Uh, a whistleblower got us some information uh, from a private nursing agency that made $105 million in profit, just pure profit for the owners, um, by work the work of 500 nurses that they have poached from the public system. And I don't, you know, I don't hold this against the nurses because no, it's really not. hard right now, you know, working in healthcare and you're being underpaid and you're overworked and uh, you're not feeling disrespected, but you know, somebody's getting really rich off this. And th that $105 million is money that's coming out of the public healthcare system that should be Absolutely. going into patient care. So something's really wrong with this picture. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Thank you, as always, uh, for the time. I, there's a few weeks to go before the summer break comes in, and, and hopefully we can get some resolution to some of these issues. Uh, thanks again, Mar. Appreciate the time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There have been serious concerns about... Uh, well, personal security, of course, for elected officials at all levels of government, but especially the federal scene over the last little while, and and even people outside of government, including bureaucrats. Well, the RCMP is responding, and they are going to be forming a brand new unit to protect ministers, top bureaucrats, uh, or threats of political violence that seem to be on the increase. And we'll delve into that just after 1030 this morning. Uh, right now, a lot of talk uh, between Canada, the U.S., and, uh, well, the Five Eyes and other nations, uh, including, of course, uh, New Zealand and Australia, uh, about what's going on in the South China Sea and what's happening in, in that part of the world. And it's because China, of course, is flexing their mes muscle uh, to a certain extent. And we know about the ongoing threats. I mean, ask the Chinese, the Japanese government and or others about, uh, about their concern about what could be happening down there. Well, uh, there's an interesting uh, op-ed piece that's written in uh, theconversation.com that addresses this. Uh, and the headline is, NATO should tread carefully in Southeast Asia, where memories of colonialism still linger. Uh, it's a, an interesting perspective and one that I think an awful lot of us may have overlooked. Uh, the author of the piece is uh, Sean Nareen, who is a professor of international relations and political science at St. Thomas University and joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, professor, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Bill. Um, I, I appreciate your asking me to be on. 
Well, the historical perspective is is big here, uh, and and I guess you know we tend to overlook the, uh, this an awful lot of the times about what happened in the past. Uh, every now and then, we've seen this, uh, you know, in in other parts of the world where they say, "Wait a second, uh, do you know what past generations of your country did to us, or the impact that it had on us?" And and there was a presence, and colonialism is something that, uh, especially here in Canada, we don't seem to have, to have a full grasp on. Uh, how long are the memories of the people that were impacted by that down in 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 the southwest part of the world? Well, I think, Bill, it's important to recognize that outside of the Western world, I think it's fair to say that colonialism, the experience of colonialism, is the single most important thing that defines how, how people think about the past and, and even understand what's happening in, in their modern day context. So it's never really gone away. I mean, the West has never dealt with it. But, you know, if you've had the experience of being occupied and controlled and, and meant and, uh, made to be, uh, feel inferior to people for a very long period of time, um, it has a lasting impact. Well, we've certainly seen that in India, uh, you know, because of what happened, of course, with the, with the, the UK or England, as it was at that time. Uh, and some of the U.S. policies, I mean, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, walk softly, carry a big stick, manifest destiny that, uh, they, there was a mindset among the powerful nations of, of bygone days that they they had not just a duty, but they thought the right uh, to be able to intercede wherever they wanted and 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 fix it the way that they thought it should be fixed. Yes, that's that, that's that's absolutely true. And I mean, to some extent, uh, you have to ask, or at least I would ask, uh, to what extent that mindset is still in play. You know, because right now, I think the Western world feels very strongly that it understands, you know, how to establish uh, a working political system, how to establish, um, um, you know, the, the economies that work. And if you're not basically a a Western style liberal democratic state, then there's something wrong with you. You haven't haven't met that bar. And I think that really both oversimplifies the problems that the modern world faces, uh, particularly outside the West and frankly, even inside the West. And it also uh, really, um, it's a really sanitized version of Western history that underlies that whole mindset. Well, as you point out in the op-ed piece, though, Professor, and I think this is is very worth noting, especially when you look at at some of the the, the concerns that the, that NATO has organized, uh, that there have been examples where what you've just described here ha- is happening, uh, where they're taking a much more proactive. A role in in some international situations, uh, some would suggest stepping over that line that they should not step over uh, to intercede and 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 you know whether it's in Libya and you mentioned a number of other examples uh, where NATO seems to be well not being reactive but proactive in in some of these instances. Yeah, and I mean um, the the example the, the situation with NATO is complicated, right? Because in the sense that NATO has seen itself as a defensive alliance for a very long time, and for most of its history, you could certainly make that argument very clearly. Um, but of course, after the Cold War ended, NATO became active. You know, it, it, its first um, adventures were in Bosnia, and of course, then later on, it got involved in Afghanistan, though with the support of the UN in that case. And then, of course, there was the intervention in uh, Li- Libya. And, and I think it's really Libya and, and Afghanistan, too. But Libya, that really has a lot of people concerned because there, NATO's motivations 
became very suspect once once you once uh, investigations into what went on went uh, were actually carried out. So it's it, NATO sort of this sense, you know, that Western colonialism hasn't entirely gone away, and that with the end of the Cold War, it may be reasserting itself. Uh, that's something that many people in Africa feel. Um, now, the Asia-Pacific situation, uh, the Indo-Pacific situation is a little bit different and more complicated, but I think the same argument could be made. Well, and, and to that point, let's let's talk a little bit about that, about about the, the feeling that it's had. And, and as you pointed out in the piece, I mean, there's I don't think too many people, you know, they're still harboring resentment, but but they're aware of their history anyway, even if they're, you know, they're not being guided by the by the, the concerns. Uh, but for the, the the presence of NATO and some of these other alliances that are starting to be formed now uh, to try to deal with the growing threat of China, uh, how are they reacting to that, Professor? I mean, they're they are they're right there. This is their backyard, so they are concerned about China and Chinese aggression. But and and they know that they need some friendships and they need some allies and they need somebody who's got their back. But are, are, is there still some trepidation about actually you know forming alliances and or relying on on, on NATO in situations like this? Uh, yeah, I think there absolutely is. I mean, and it kind of depends, of course, on the countries you're talking about. As I said, as I said the Indo-Pacific region is complicated. Um, I focus specifically on Southeast Asia and the peace because that's my area of specialization. Mm-hmm. And the Southeast Asian countries have come out very clearly and said they don't want a uh, – they, they, they want to reduce the, the, the tensions in the region and they feel that um, d- d- diplomacy – and conversation and economic ties are the way to go. And so they don't want a, a uh, military confrontation taking place. And for them, it matters for a number of different reasons. One of them, of course, is that their economic prosperity actually depends on China doing well. Right. So so they're tied into China in a way that many other countries, well, frankly, many countries in the world are, but even more deeply, even more intimately than most other places. And so their desire not to have conflict is real. Now, they are concerned. Some of them are concerned with China being being, as you say, aggressive. And there's no doubt that China has been aggressive, though, though it is more complicated than that as well. I keep using the word complicated. I guess I, I should emphasize these issues are complex, right? There's history, there's politics, there's individual states' perspectives on them, which make things it's, it's not amenable to a simple sort of, of explanation. But putting that aside, um, they, you know, I think the thing with Chinese aggression is this. Yeah, China's being aggressive in certain parts of the South China Sea. But on the other hand, if you fairly compare Chinese aggression and how it's acting in the world to how the Western world has acted, not just in historical terms, but even in contemporary terms, um, the Chinese really aren't that bad. If the worst you can say is that uh, China is stirring things up in the South China Sea, well, that's not really that much by a global comparison. You know, the last time China used military force in the South China Sea was about 1974-75. You know, we've had 40 years of, of relative, um, not peace exactly, but at least not the use of force. Nobody's died in that particular area. Whereas, you know, compare that to the United States and the war on terror. And, you know, the Watson Institute at the Brown University just came out with a study that said when you look at all the wars on terror that have taken place since 2001, 4.6 million people have died. Uh, you know, and that, that's everything. That's both directly and indirectly as a result of these conflicts and all the economic and other kinds of, of instability that they cause. So, you know, 
China getting getting messy in the South China Sea compared to literally millions of people dying because of a Western war, um, there's no comparison. I think that perspective is something we need to keep in mind. Uh, is there a concern, though, about, uh, as you say, that, and I don't know if anybody's expecting the, the Chinese Navy or the Chinese Army to simply invade. Well, there's some concern, I guess, about that in Taiwan, but but in, in other areas. Because I mean, we've heard stories, and I'm sure you, you, you've seen these as well, Professor, of, of Chinese, shall we say, incursions, you know, with some of these island states, these tiny islands in, in, in the South Pacific, where they simply say, by the way, we're going to plant some ships here. We're going to, you know, and we're going to have troops over here. You know, we're doing some training exercises. And, and, and it's kind of growth by stealth. In other words, they don't make a big deal about it, but it's that's just one other area where China all of a sudden has influence uh, over that particular nation. And I know the United States is concerned about that. As, as we know, you know, the G7 meeting in, in, in Japan, uh, Joe Biden wanted to go down there. That was he was scheduled to go down to some of those those uh, places down there and say, look, at, we're, we're your friend, too. You know, you rely on us. And sadly, he couldn't do it because of what was going on in the U.S. Congress. But there does seem to be a concern about how China is growing. Uh, they're not doing it militarily necessarily, but they're doing it by influence. They are, as you say, you know, an economy that everybody is relying on right now. Yeah, I guess I, I, I don't want to minimize uh, the, the potential concerns with the growth of Chinese influence and power. Um, but at the same time, you know, by, by, by many economic measures, China is the biggest economy in the world, mm -hmm. um, substantially larger than the U.S. economy by, by, by PPP. Um, so the question for me, in part, is why shouldn't such an enormous economy, an enormous country and an enormous market have political influence. You know, I think a bigger part of the problem, see, at the same time, we're looking at things, you know, we, we, you know um, China really doesn't have many military bases outside of its, its own borders. I think it has one in Djibouti. Um, it has, you know, um, it, it's worked out some arrangements with the Solomon Islands and other places, but yeah. the United States literally has 750 military bases and 300 of them are in the Asia Pacific. So, so the part of what I would question is why we accept one set of countries having enormous military and economic power, and yet we're so concerned about one country just beginning to assert some power that you could argue is entirely proportional. Um, in fact, actually, not 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 that that commensurate with its actual size is just starting to do that. And so, I think we've got to examine those those questions for ourselves. You know, like one of my arguments would be that the biggest problem we've had right now with China is that rather than recognizing that we need to make room for it in the existing international system, um, the G7 led by the U.S. is very much trying to to contain it, to pen it in. And why you would be trying to contain the biggest country in the world, you know, by population, by economic size, it seems to be a very dangerous and frankly foolish thing to do when accommodation and recognizing that reality seems to me a much more prudent course of action. But is it because of the concern about intentions? I mean, they're growing, and yes, you, you, you can't, you know, they're the elephant in the room. I mean, you know, they, they dominate. Even as you said, some of these smaller countries or island states uh, that you just referenced, I mean, they still rely on China for economic ties. And, and so does the United States, and so does Canada, and, and yeah. as they all do, and certainly so does Russia. Uh, but I, I, the concern I'm, I'm hearing from an awful lot of people, 
right now, Professor, is they always seem to take the other side. I mean, you know, they're supporting Russia in the war in Ukraine. They're, uh, they're, you know, we know that, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there's supposed to be, uh, you know, some some blockages and economic sanctions that are being in place, uh, the Chinese government is still negotiating with pipelines with the Russians, etc. Uh, in other words, we feel as if they're aligned with the wrong side, and and that I think probably, and as a matter of fact, I think positively colors our mindset about about their intentions and where they're going and how they may use or some people would think abuse that power. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. But but again, I'd have to ask like why we think their intentions because we're making assumptions about their intentions, right? But you're right, they're they're on the wrong side in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, at least from our perspective. Now they have a different perspective. And one of the things I point out in the article is that outside the Western world, when you look at the Russian-Ukraine war, most of the world actually th- accepts the Russian argument that they felt that NATO NATO's expansion was a real threat to them. Now you can debate whether or not that's true, but still it's true, it is true that most of the world thinks the Russians had at least a point. And so the Chinese are coming at it from that perspective. And one point I'd like to make about this, you know, as we get more hostile towards China, they question our intentions. And one of the things that's happening with the Russia-China situation is that as the G7 becomes more hostile to China, China feels that it needs to side more strongly with Russia because it's being pushed into that camp. So it may have had a disposition in that direction anyway, but it has to make its ties even stronger because for it, the nightmare scenario would be being left alone to face the West all by itself with with Russia basically taken off the board. And so I think intentions go both ways. And part of the point I tried to make in, in the piece is that to many people in the world, the period of Western domination of the world never ended. You know, you know, there there may have been direct colonialism that may have ended, but indirect colonialism has always continued. And and from that point of view, the real threat that China poses it has nothing to do with democracy or human rights or things like that. The real threat that it poses is that it's a non-Western state that isn't controllable by the West. I think the Chinese see it this way, and that's part of what they're responding to. They look at Western expansion, you know, the increasing uh, American. Uh, um, uh, presence in the Asia Pacific, increasing hostility towards them, you know, on economic and technological grounds. And they think, well, that's the problem. The dominant powers want to make sure that they remain dominant. This is, uh, almost, I know we're just about out of time here. It's, it's almost like part two of, of, of the Cold War. I mean, you know, back in, in the fifties the and sixties, it was, it was the Russian concern about, you know, overtaking everything and, and, and exerting influence. And now it seems to be China and the U S uh, that seem to be butting heads about stuff like this. And, and the battle goes on for the hearts and minds of these people, doesn't it, professor? And, uh, India being a classic example of that, you know, the, uh, the U S wants to exert influence and trade, uh, increases with with India. India has a relationship with the Chinese. Of course they do. They're in the same part of the world. Uh, they have a relationship with Russia that we're not crazy about. I mean, we're told that they're still buying arms from Russia, and that's helping to finance the Russian effort in Ukraine. So you know, there are some things here that sometimes we kind of turn a blind eye to, uh, but those are the realities that the rest of the world is also looking at. Yeah, absolutely. And now with India, I would say India has its own game. India is its own player. You know, and yeah. its, its relationship with China is both hostile as well as, as you know, they cooperate in different ways, as you point out. They have a very different perspective, but their their different perspective is shared by many other countries in the world. And I think, you know, we in the West have a very narrow view, but we keep forgetting we only constitute 15% of the world's population. 
And other countries in the world, there are 85% and they have their own historical and other points of view. Now, your point about the Cold War, I think, is really interesting and relevant, but it's really important to note that, in my opinion, we're, we're, we're as responsible for antagonizing China as, as anything else. And I don't think this Cold War, even though we certainly seem to be heading in that direction, it's totally unnecessary. I think that's the biggest tragedy, that the Chinese actually have a stake in the existing economic system, at least. They, they're the number one trading country in the world. War is not good for trade. Their own economic survival and prosperity depends on relative peace. Outside of their own region, putting aside the South China Sea and Taiwan, China actually is a force for positive gain. You know, they've been a peacemaker in the Middle East. They're helping develop Africa. Um, so it's very complicated. And I think we have to recognize that on the biggest issues of the day, particularly climate change, we need Chinese cooperation in order to deal with these things. And I mm -hmm. think that I, I, I tend to think it's the Western world that's pushing this conflict and this uh, tension much more than the Chinese are. I think if you look at it historically and from a perspective that says, okay, we're not preferencing the Western point of view, but we're trying to look at it from everyone's point of view, the Chinese, they've done some things badly. The Western world has done a lot of things badly for a very long time, and those things matter. Professor, we're going to have to leave it there. We're just about out of time. Thank you so much for the time today. Appreciate the conversation. Uh, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Pro Professor Sean Noreen from uh, St. Thomas University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have talked ad nauseum about the number of threats that have gone on with public officials. A lot of it had to do with the pandemic, of course, and restrictions that government put in place. But uh, the threats are real. Uh, there have been death threats. There have been threats of violence. Uh, Christia Freeland, of course, was, uh, was threatened and accosted in an Edmonton hotel a few months ago. Uh, somebody was just convicted, of course, throwing gravel at the prime minister. Well, the RCMP is responding right now, and Ottawa now plans to boost RCMP's funding so that they can have a special unit to protect ministers, top bureaucrats, and others from threats of political violence. Joining us to talk about this is Michael Kempa. Michael is an associate professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Okay, thank you, Bill. Uh, this is the same RCMP that we've talked about in the past that is very understaffed, uh, having trouble recruiting people right now. Uh, talk to us about the impact this is going to have and how effective a, a unit like this could be. Well, first of all, it's absolutely vital at this point in time for the RCMP to have the resources to amp up protection for senior cabinet ministers, key bureaucrats. Um, ideally, we'd want to go in the direction, too, of Supreme Court justices uh, mm -hmm. and other high-ranking um, people within uh, criminal justice and in intelligence in Canada for the reason that threats against these high-profile public-facing people have greatly increased in the last couple of years. As you say, something to do with COVID. But, you know, COVID was the flashpoint that emboldened a lot of people uh, not the mainstream protesters, but those behind them with more extremist views that are emboldened to act on these views. So absolutely essential. But for the RCMP, I think this underlines for everybody, how can we possibly ask all of these different things of one police organization? So number one, provide this type of high-level security, the high-ranking federal uh, and in some cases, perhaps provincial public facing politicians and other civil servants. And at the same time, that same organization will provide community policing in a northern community 
uh, working with indigenous leaders, health organizations, and others to do community crime prevention. One organization cannot do all of those extremely varied things, at least not very well. Well, and you and I have talked about this in, in our, some of our past discussions, Michael, that, you know, there are there are voices in Ottawa right now that saying it's time to just blow up the RCMP and start all over again. They're trying to be too many different things to too many people. And I'm not and I agree with you, by the way, this is a very necessary move to make. Uh, but boy, this is putting pressure on an agency that's under intense pressure already to try to to meet the requirements of some of the other initiatives and responsibilities that they've had foisted upon them. Absolutely. And I think that absence of a clear set of mandates, identity and purpose for the RCMP further contributes to their difficulties in recruiting people. If you're a young person looking to join a policing organization, uh, many of them will say they have very little concept of what their career would even look like within the RCMP in the sense that they're not sure if they would be providing that remote area community crime prevention, making their way to federal policing issues. And in the face of confusion, they may just say, well, I might as well join another police organization where I have a better sense of what I'll be doing, whether it's a municipal police service, a provincial police service. The mandate is that much more clear, and it attracts people to the role uh, because clarity attracts the best candidates. Are we in a situation right now that we? This is an identified need, and I don't, as you said, I don't think anybody's going to argue that. I, I still remember covering that story of Christia Freeland getting uh, accosted emotion, verbally, anyway, in that Edmonton hotel a few months ago, uh, with absolutely nobody around her. I mean, you know, she, this is the deputy prime minister and and the finance minister, and and this guy's yelling at her and walking up and and, and following her around the hotel lobby. It's got to be a frightening experience. So yeah, th- there's a need here for this, absolutely. But do we just now say, uh, well, throw it on the RCMP? You know, that's our police force and then they'll have to look after this uh where is the the, the thought process here uh, and i don't want to simply say hey let's do it like the u.s does because they're you know they're the best but they seem to have understood that th- there have to be different agencies for different responsibilities there's a cia there's an fbi there's a secret service uh down here in, in this part of the world in the canada we just seem to say well the rcmp will do it well, i think that's the legacy of the rcmp being that largest and most complex and divided up into different responsibilities organizations. I mean, Canada never had anywhere near the population or sophistication of problems facing federation as complicated as the United States, but we've certainly caught up. Once you get past that point of closing in on about 40 million population, uh, the society just becomes that much more complicated where obviously a paramilitary policing model that was rolled out really to bring the Western territories into confederation literally 150 years ago, this month, this past month of May, obviously that type of organization can't do all the things that, as you say, the FBI, Secret Service, CIA, and other organizations in the United States are specialized to do. Now, I don't know if you blow the RCMP up and get rid of it completely. I know there are people who do say that. I feel that's a little unfair to many of the very honorable people in the RCMP who could go on to make a contribution in some specific area in which they excel. But maybe we're talking about starting with some specialized streams where you know some RCMP officers may come in with the intention of serving local policing uh, as a career, whereas others would be recruited and trained differently to fill this national set of issues functions. 
Uh, we should mention, by the way, for people that may not know, the prime minister already has his own detail. I mean, there there are people that are on his security detail. Uh, that's just by nature of, of the job itself. Uh, others, I guess, this could be done on a on a, a one off basis. I guess, couldn't it, Michael? I mean, uh, I don't necessarily think this is going to mean that some of these cabinet ministers are simply going to have you know security people following them around everywhere. But do we do we allocate this on an as needed basis? That's the way they'll be doing it, yes. It'll be driven by threat assessments conducted by the RCMP. Um, they will review threats that forward-facing politicos and bureaucrats receive, and then they will come up with a plan for where, when, and how long that individual would need protection. Um, I think we might imagine that the volume of threats coming through, uh, there's been leaks to the media by senior bureaucrats and politicians that they don't feel that the RCMP would be up to the task of sifting through all of that um, in in a way that would guarantee people's security. In other words, things will always get through the cracks. Um, You know, again, that's where we get into the idea that maybe a specialized protective services for forward-facing Politico VIPs like the Secret Service may be a better way to go because it's dedicated to that set of functions. Well, and and, and again, as, as we've talked about in the past, I mean, it's the allocation of, of resources in situations like this. Uh, and, and your point is is bang on here. I mean, there's there's always people that are going to be in opposition to government. There's always people that are going to be vocal about that in various forms. But they seem emboldened these days for a variety of reasons. And you're right, it didn't start with the pandemic, but like so many other things, it, it exacerbated the problem. Um can we anticipate that this is only going to get worse? I mean, just, you know, with social media and some of the, the groups, the Proud Boys and other ones that are feeding into this right now, we've we've had stories about that kind of activity and that kind of influence on this right now. Uh, it seems to me as if this is a problem that, that is going to be with us for quite some time. Well, there's no doubt about that. When you speak to intelligence officials within police and intelligence agencies, they'll tell you that the more radical views uh, when we're going through sort of ordinary, stable, social, political, and economic times are very much on the margins. They don't have the legitimacy and they are not emboldened to circulate their views uh, because there's less of an audience, a receptive audience for their views. In hard times, pandemic times, economic downturn times, there are a lot of angry people out there who provide almost like a market for the ideas of these more radical agents. So when they're able to put them out there, those messages, and people are receptive, and COVID-19 was an excellent hook issue by which to draw people into other alternative, more radical political messages, they become emboldened, just as you say, because where you've got an audience, you've got a sense of legitimacy. And then these things are echoed through social media. They are spread so that instances in one place, and intelligence agencies use the term elastic effect. Uh, something that happens, so for example, Christia Freeland is, is harassed in Alberta last summer. Um, that has an elastic effect circulating through social media through which many of these other more radical actors will see that and feel emboldened to carry on threatening other people who may come into their path, high-profile people who come into their path in the future. That's the elastic effect. Well, hopefully this is going to be at least addressing the problem. It'd be interesting to see just how this rolls out. Michael, always great to get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for this today. Always, Bill. 
Take care. Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.